Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. Our guest today is Dr. Alan C. Gelzo. He is the Senior Research Scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University and Director of the James Madison Program's Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship. He is the author of many excellent books on Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, including Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, and Gettysburg, The Last invasion. Rather than listing his numerous awards, honors, and prizes, I'll just say this. He is the world's leading authority on Abraham Lincoln, and he joins us today to discuss Abraham Lincoln's seminal Gettysburg Address. Dr. Alan C. Gelzo, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you, Nino. It's wonderful to be talking to you and to be part of Madison's Notes. On this day in 1863, November 19th, Abraham Lincoln took the stage at Gettysburg and delivered what may be our nation's most iconic speech. Set the stage for us. What was going on in the war at the time, and why was Lincoln back at Gettysburg some four and a half months after the battle there? Well, in some ways, this was the easiest time during the war that Lincoln had experienced. The first six months of the year 1863 had simply been horrible. Uh, The year before, December had had ended with this catastrophic battle at Fredericksburg, followed in January of 1863 by another terrible failure known as the Mud March. And then in May, after building up everybody's hopes, there was another serious defeat at the Battle of Chancellorsville. And finally, you come to June and July of 1863, and the principal Confederate army, the Army of Northern Virginia, is on the loose in the north. And then comes the Great Battle of Gettysburg, three days, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 1863. And the Confederate army is defeated and withdraws back into Virginia. Lincoln is very disappointed that the Federal Army, the Army of the Potomac, did not, in fact, close in and finish off the Confederate Army. But on the other hand, he was still grateful for the victory that had been won, because hard on the heels of that victory comes the news of another victory, and that is the capture of the last Confederate citadel on the Mississippi River, Vicksburg, by General Ulysses Grant. That gives Lincoln the best weekend he's had in the war. And the good news seemed to keep on going. Uh, Union forces occupy the rebel uh, railhead at Chattanooga. Uh, That's a vital rail connection in Tennessee. And now Union armies are almost in complete control of the state of Tennessee. Uh, The good news has come in such, such wonderful amounts that Lincoln's, one of Lincoln's secretaries, John Hay, Uh, wrote in August that uh, nothing, nothing shows more clearly that the rebellion is drawing to its close 
than the disorganization of its votaries. And he meant that not only the Confederacy, but anti-war uh, Democrats in the North. Um, and Hay pointed to the victories of Gettysburg and Vicksburg, um, Chattanooga, Port Hudson uh, in Louisiana. All of these all of these just seemed to signal a tremendous turnaround. Uh, people were even talking about how this just guaranteed the re-election of Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. And then there were political victories too, because there had been anti-war candidates for governor in Ohio and in Pennsylvania. They were resoundingly defeated hmm. in the fall elections. So when Lincoln writes... A, a, a what he calls a public letter uh, at the end of August 1863. Uh, he's, he's optimistic for the first time uh, publicly. He says the signs look better. The father of waters, meaning the Mississippi River, goes unvexed to the sea. He really believed that peace didn't seem as distant as it uh, had once uh, seemed to be. I mean, there was a brief setback in Chickamauga, uh, at the Battle of Chickamauga in September. But then Ulysses Grant was put into charge of that area and that crisis. And Grant seemed to have that in hand. And in fact, Grant would win a major victory uh, just uh, several days after Lincoln delivers the Gettysburg Address. So for Lincoln, this is, this is a moment on the upswing in the war. And he can afford to start looking forward with hope for what amounted to the first time in this long and, and enervating crisis. What was so special about the Battle of Gettysburg? Uh, you've written an authoritative book on the subject. So why did he return there? What was so special about this battle? Well, it certainly had to have been special because Lincoln very rarely ventured out of Washington uh, during the war, uh, except on occasions when he's visiting the army uh, for uh, review purposes or discussions with generals. But he hardly ever makes any political journeys, despite the fact that there are numerous invitations for him to do so. The fact that he would do so at Gettysburg underscores that for Lincoln, the Battle of Gettysburg and then the cemetery dedication are really extremely important moments. And Gettysburg in particular is important for him in a very symbolic way. Uh, not only is it a significant defeat for the Confederates, and up, up until the Battle of Gettysburg, it simply seemed that the Confederate army was, was almost invincible, that the Confederate army under its legendary commander, Robert E. Lee, simply could not be beaten. And Gettysburg seemed to reverse that image completely, that now the Union Army had shown that, in fact, the Confederates were not invincible. But the, the, there's more than just the practical impact of the battle. Uh, there's also the symbolic impact, because Lincoln looks at the proximity of Gettysburg to the 4th of July. And to him, there's almost a providential connection between the two. Uh, people came to the White House as uh, 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 almost a jubilant crowd several days after the news of Gettysburg and Vicksburg. And Lincoln goes outside to address them. And he makes this point in a very offhand way, because he's, he's speaking 
uh, extemporaneously. But he makes this connection between July 4th, 1776, and July 4th, 1863. And he says, on July 4th, 1863, what happened was those who had called into question the principle of July 4th, 1776, and that is that all men are created equal, those who had opposed that had been defeated and put on the run. And he, he looked at the conjunction of this, and it just seemed like it was something written in the heavens. So Gettysburg assumes this tremendous importance in his mind, both practically and symbolically. And so when the invitation does come to him to speak at the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery at Gettysburg, uh, this is one occasion in which he sits down, thinks about it, and this time he agrees to make the journey. And so he does. And so he makes the journey. How many people were in attendance for this dedication of the cemetery? Well, the estimates vary, but generally speaking, the likelihood is that somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people poured into Gettysburg to attend the dedication ceremonies. Now, bear in mind, this is at a time when the population of the town of Gettysburg is about 2,300 people. <laughs> So, so this is a, a huge influx of visitors, and you know, not only have they crowded out of the hotels, but uh, there's no room in the hotels. The, the hotels are renting out sofas in their lobbies oh. for people to sleep <laughs> on. Uh, so it, it's really a, a, an impressive crowd that turns out for this. All the more impressive because Gettysburg was not exactly the easiest place to get to. There was one train line which came into Gettysburg, but only one. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to get to Gettysburg, uh, there, was, there was not an easy way to do it. You really had to put out some effort. So the fact that there are ten to 15,000 people crowding into Gettysburg for this is significant just in its own terms. Now, of course, it's Lincoln's speech that we remember, and it's Lincoln's speech that you and I are here to discuss today. But Lincoln was not the keynote speaker. Tell us about the keynote speaker. No, the, key, the keynote speaker was Edward Everett, a name that almost nobody wants to conjure <laughs> with anymore. Uh, Edward Everett in his own day, of course, was extremely well known. That's why he receives the invitation to deliver what is, I suppose you could really call the actual Gettysburg address. Uh, Everett had a long and distinguished career. He was an academic, um, a Harvard professor, um, a master of the classics. He taught Greek at Harvard, taught Greek literature there, but he'd also been involved in politics as a Whig. Uh, he had been in the presidential cabinet. He'd been in Congress. Uh, he'd uh, been in Massachusetts politics. And as an orator, he was considered one of the premier, if not the premier, American public speakers of his day. So it was not surprising that the invitation would come to Everett. Now, what's unusual is the conjunction here, because curiously enough, Edward Everett in 1860 had run as, as vice president on a ticket known as the Constitutional Union Party. The, uh, the presidential nominee was John Bell of Tennessee. The Constitutional Union Party was a, 
third party effort. And actually in 1860 was really something of a fourth party effort uh, of old time conservative Whigs. I mean, the Whig party by that point was dead, but this was mostly old conservative border state Whigs coming together to try to provide an alternative on the one hand to the divided Democratic Party and to the Lincoln Republicans. So Everett is actually running as a vice president on a ticket rivaling Abraham Lincoln. Mm. But once the election was over, once the Civil War began, Everett came down very strongly on the side of the Union, very supportive of the Union. And so Everett ends up getting the invitation to deliver the principal address. And, in, and what he delivers is par for the course. Uh, he delivers a real doozy of a two and a half hour speech <laughs> entitled The Battles of Gettysburg, hmm. in which he, re he gives a historical review of the entire Gettysburg campaign. And in some, you know, 13,000 words, uh, he lays out the whole story of what had happened at the battle and winds up at the conclusion with this peroration comparing Gettysburg to the Battle of Marathon and, and other classical similes. And it's a, in its own right, it's, it's an impressive piece of oratory. The problem is it's, it's all lecture. There's no, there's no, nothing quotable in it. There's no sound bites. There's nothing particularly memorable. I mean, once you've heard it, that's, you know, it goes in one ear and out of the other and you think that was a nice event, but you don't really remember anything from it. Uh, two and a half hours worth of that. Yeah. Well, people listened to public orations like that frequently. And uh, that, so that's not surprising in its own right, but there is a reason why we don't remember Edward Everett all that much. And that is because what he said wasn't really all that memorable. It fit the bill for the occasion, but it was nothing more than what you might expect from public orations of the day. The surprise uh, was Lincoln. Lincoln was actually only invited to deliver the dedication statement mm. for the cemetery. And the invitation actually put it in terms of asking him to deliver a few appropriate remarks that would form the cemetery dedication. And that's what he does. He does a few appropriate remarks, 272 words. But such words, such words. Uh, and it's that that we remember. Uh, two and a half minutes for Lincoln, two and a half hours for Everett. But it's Lincoln that really hit the mark in the popular imagination. Let's turn to Lincoln's words now. You were kind enough to record a beautiful reading of the speech, so we'll play that now. But I'd like to introduce the speech with something you wrote back in 2013 in celebration of the 150th anniversary of the address. And you pick up in this passage immediately following Edward Everett's address. Quote, there was then a consecration hymn to be sung by the 12 members of the National Union Musical Association. Five stanzas worth of holy ground and widow's tears. Ward Hill Lemon, Lincoln's friend and the master of ceremonies, was ready to make the next introduction. And as he did, the president leaned over and thanked Everett. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, announced Lamon. In the distance, South Mountain slumbered in a soft haze. Lincoln stood up, took a thin slip of paper from the inside pocket of his frock coat, grasped, as was his habit, his left coat lapel, 
and began to speak. Fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Four score and seven years ago. It seems a rather strange way to begin a speech, especially reading or hearing it today. By the time we're done doing that math, four score and seven, he's halfway through the speech. So why did he choose to begin that way? Well, first of all, it was more literary. It was more eloquent than simply saying 87 years ago. Back in, um, <laughs> back in July, when he delivered those offhand remarks to the crowd that gathered at the White House, he actually started off by saying, how many years ago was it? 80 odd years? <laughs> All right, that's off the cuff speaking. Yeah. And you can forgive him for a little bit of vagueness there. But there's no excuse for vagueness at this point. We want to be very specific, and so Lincoln is fourscore and seven years ago. But even that locution, fourscore and seven, is, strikes us as being a little, a little odd. I mean, why doesn't he just simply say then, 87 years ago, or back in 1776, or something like that, instead it comes out fourscore and seven years ago? Well, I think there's two basic reasons. One is, Lincoln never had any formal training in what you'd call rhetoric, but he was a tremendous reader. And one of the things that forms a central part of his reading is the Bible. And in those days, the Bible was the King James version of the Bible. That was what was in common currency. And you have this phrase in Psalm 90 about how the lifespan of human beings is three score years and ten. And that embeds itself in Lincoln's imagination and memory. And that's what bubbles to the surface when he's looking for a way of saying 87 years ago. But there's another 
precedent for this too, because that reference to this four score and seven, something very similar to that was used by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Galusha Grow. When Grow was elected, it was a very jumbled election uh, for Speaker. When he finally was elected, uh, Grow delivered a speech thanking people, and he begins by using this four-score uh, phraseology. Hmm. Uh, Grow's speech was a very popular speech. It winds up being anthologized in a number of textbooks, rhetoric textbooks and readers of the day. And it's very likely that Lincoln saw that, read that, and that too stuck in his memory. So whatever the exact motivation for using that phraseology, uh, whether it's the, the biblical resonance, whether it's the memory of Groh's very popular speech, uh, whatever the exact source of it, that's what shows up four score and seven years ago. And it's a very, it's a very literary flowing way yeah. of beginning this invocation of the founding of the United States and its connection to uh, the Battle of Gettysburg and the dedication of the cemetery. It seems significant that he dates the founding of the nation to 1776, to the Declaration of Independence, and not, say, to 1789. So why 1776? Well, 1776 is the birthday of the United States. Uh, we created a constitution in 1787, and we really put it into implementation by 1789. But the United States existed as the United States before the Constitution. The United States makes the Constitution, not the other way around. And before that, we were governed under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, we weren't governed particularly well. That's why we had to create the Constitution. Uh, but the beginning of the United States is really 1776. And the document with which that founding is most intimately associated is our Declaration of Independence. And that's what Lincoln takes us back to because the United States has its origins in what happens in 1776. Lincoln talks of our fathers who bring forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, Lincoln was well-versed in his geometry. He read his Euclid. Why proposition? Why that word? Because proposition is logical. And what was the United States founded upon except an exercise in logic? Now understand what, what is meant by that. Other nations, and in 1776, and in truth, even in 1863, other nations saw their origins in religion, in language, in some kind of tribal folk myth, in race. I mean, Germans identify themselves as German going back to you know, the Teutoburger Wall. The French identify themselves as French going back to Charlemagne. Uh, but Americans don't identify themselves as Americans by race or religion or ethnicity or language or any of those things. We organized ourselves, we declared our independence on the basis of certain propositions 
which of course made other nations in the world laugh laugh at us because they say, how can you build a nation on propositions? How can you build a nation around a declaration of, of human equality? How can you build a nation around natural law and invocations of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? I mean, Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence doesn't rally us to the revolution on the grounds that we are the offspring of the original Anglo-Saxons to a certain extent, he probably believed that, but he, he doesn't make that kind of racial or cultural connection. Uh, Jefferson instead appeals to these propositions. And the central proposition, of course, is the proposition of equality, that no one is born, as he wrote toward the end of his life, uh, booted and spurred and ready to ride everyone else by the grace of God. Mm. There, there is no, there's no automatic nobility. There's no automatic aristocracy. Right. Uh, everyone stands before the law as an equal, and everyone stands under natural law as an equal, possessing equal quantities of natural law. And for him, those propositions, for Lincoln, those propositions, that's, that is the founding basis of the United States. And when he, is, he finds the Civil War on his doorstep, he understands that as a challenge to those propositions. So yes, the United States is built upon propositions, and especially this proposition about equality. Other nations may be built upon other things, but the American nation is unique. You can come from any place, and you can be part of the American experiment. How? by signing on, by signing on to those propositions, by taking that oath, by becoming a citizen. And it matters not whether you have come from a place where autocrats and dictators ruled, a place where race is used as the determinant of political life. It doesn't matter where you have come from what your background is, what language your forebears spoke. You come to the United States, you sign on to those propositions, you're in. One thing I said, just to try to illustrate this in Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, was that it takes 1,200 years to make a Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because of all, all the cultural content there. No. But you can become an American in 20 minutes. Hmm. By signing on to that, those propositions, by taking that oath, by becoming a citizen. And it is absolutely sublime. My great-grandfather, who came from Sweden, wrote out in pencil, longhand, copied out, the Declaration of Independence, wow. the Gettysburg Address. He couldn't wait to become a citizen. He could not wait to abjure the authority of the King of Sweden. He wanted to become an American. And, and, and you, can, you can become that. Yeah. You don't have to be born that way. You can become that. And you can become that because what we are is a nation founded on these basic creedal propositions. The speech is only 272 words, as you said. And yet, as you just illustrated, there is so much packed into those 272 words, so much packed even into that first 
sentence. And of course, few people know this address as well as you do. So what else is there? What else should readers be looking out for? I would tell people, watch how swiftly Lincoln moves. He starts at the very beginning with an appeal to the past, and that is 1776. Then he brings us to the present, and that is this great civil war that we are involved in, and how we're now on a, a battleground of that civil war, and what's happening in that civil war. What's happening in the civil war is a test of the propositions, a test of the nation built on those propositions. And Lincoln understood the Civil War as kind of a final exam for the kind of democracy that America was. The Civil War was going to prove one way or the other, as he put it, whether popular government is not an absurdity. Because ever since 1776, every aristocrat, every prince and duke and despot had predicted that people could not rule themselves. The people were unable to govern themselves. They needed to have aristocrats to do it for them. And Lincoln was very conscious. I mean, he said this to John Hay at the very beginning of the war. He said, if we fail, it will go far to prove the incapability of the people to govern themselves. And he really meant that because if you, if you look at what happens in 1776, there's a lot of confidence that a new age has dawned. That's what we put in, in our national motto, uh, that we are a, 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 a novus ordo seclorum. We, we are a new order of things in the ages. But then having created this, this new order, we see what happens in France and the French Revolution, where it all corkscrews down into the reign of terror and then the, the despotism of, of Napoleon. You see how democratic revolutions in Europe in 1820, in 1825, in 1848 especially, how they all fail. And it seems to demonstrate in vivid terms that what Americans began with in 1776 was really not a promise for the future. It was just a fluke. Hmm. And that, that the ability of people to rule themselves is a chimera. So all the evidence as it stood on the ground in, in 1863 was that popular government is, an, is, is a fiction and, and people cannot do the job of governing on their own. They have to have monarchs to do it for them. And as he looked at the situation posed by the Civil War, it seemed that the Civil War was providing all the evidence those monarchs and aristocrats needed to confirm themselves in their opinion. Because hmm. here is this last outpost of popular self-rule, self-government, and it's blowing its brains out in a Civil War. Hmm. So he looks at the Civil War and says, this is, this is the final exam. And if Americans can't make this work, if, we, if Americans cannot make a republic work, then nobody will be able to, and it'll simply prove that the monarchs were right and that 1776 was uh, a laudable exception, but nothing more than that. 
Now he comes to Gettysburg and he comes to dedicate the Soldiers National Cemetery there. And to him, what had happened at Gettysburg is the silent rebuke to democracy's cultured despisers and skeptics. Because the 3,900 or so who are buried in that cemetery, in that Soldiers National Cemetery, one third of them, by the way, were unknowns. Mm. Wow. The ones who were buried there were, were ordinary people. They were, they were farmers, they were clerks from offices, they were students, they were, they were ordin the most ordinary people in the world. But they had demonstrated at Gettysburg, they had demonstrated in the Civil War, a capacity for sacrifice in the defense of democracy that was its own refutation of the contempt of the Republic's dis despisers. Now, now today, the despisers of democracy, they don't wear crowns, they're not monarchs. But their, their complaint is still that democracy is bland, it's indifferent, it's unjust. And Lincoln's words at Gettysburg are rebuked to them too. Uh, what he sees at Gettysburg looking around him is we have passed the test. Hmm. This, this war is this test of whether this nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And he is confident that those who fought here have proved that it will endure. And that, that's the moment when he makes his next pivot from the present to the future. Because that's the moment when he says, all right, we've come here to dedicate a cemetery, but you know, in the real sense, in the larger sense, as he puts it, we, we can't dedicate this ground. This has already been dedicated by those who fought here and died here and struggled here. The real dedication that has to take place is within us, the living, moving forward to the future. We have to adopt the same attitude, we have to embrace the same principles that were embraced by those who fought at Gettysburg and who died at Gettysburg. And if we will do that, if we will embrace with the same fervency and the same dedication though, as those who fought here, then government of the people, by the people, for the people will not perish from the earth, as the monarchs and the aristocrats had hoped and predicted, that there will be a new birth of freedom. And that is what he challenges people at the dedication to. Let's, let's look at the future, and in that future, the future depends on our dedication to the same principles represented by all of these grave markers and all of these graves here in this cemetery. And in a way, you know, it's open-ended because it still speaks to us today. It still says to us today that we have to be dedicated to those same principles. Because democracy really is the, the universal plea of humanity against totalitarianism in all of its forms. And in the Civil War, 
from the example of those who, who gave their lives in the cause of freedom. From the Civil War, Americans could highly resolve to destroy slavery and make their constitution a, a government of equal protection. But it's also that same dedication that moved us forward to destroy fascism and communism. And it's the same dedication that we need to move us forward today. So Lincoln's words there, as he pivots to the future, still speak to us. We're part of that future. Hmm. And the direction he gives there is a direction that we have to take seriously in our own generation. The speech means so much to us today, all these years after. What did it mean to the crowd and to the country at the time it was delivered in the days following? Well, you know, there's a, there's a legend uh, that the Gettysburg Address fell flat. And this was, this was a legend more or less peddled, <laughs> if I can put it that way, uh, by one of Lincoln's friends, Ward Hill Lamon. I mean, you've mentioned huh. Lamon. Uh, Lamon had practiced law out in Illinois on the same circuit with Lincoln. Uh, he, was, he was something of a sidekick. For Lincoln, when Lincoln became president, he made him marshal of the District of Columbia. Well, Lamon is actually the master of ceremonies for the cemetery dedication. And afterward, Lamon described the response of the crowd as being just nothing. People didn't respond. Mm. And he, he says that Lincoln turned to him and said, Lamon, that speech won't scour. It was a flat failure. And from that, people have uh, since then taken the direction that Lamon pointed them towards and concluded that nobody really understood what Lincoln was saying. And it was only much later as people reflected on what Lincoln had said that they began to see the real greatness of it. Well, Lamon is not by any means the most reliable source. Lamon had a great imagination, <laughs> too much of an imagination. And He's, he's not really regarded as being tremendously reliable uh, as, as a witness uh, to, to events. So the, the fact that Lincoln supposedly made this comment about, well, that, that speech won't scour, has been treated with a certain degree of skepticism by, by Lincoln scholars over the years. And if you look at how people across the country and, and really at the event itself respond, uh, what you get is something very different. There was quite a mixture of both astonishment and admiration mm. over the address. Uh, people in the cemetery uh, listened, and this is according to one witness whose letter was published only 11 days after the ceremonies. People in the, people in the cemetery, this enormous crowd standing there, uh, listened very intently as he read the address, and this letter says, you could not mistake the feeling and sentiment of the vast multitude before him. People were with him when he was saying that. And according to the Associated Press's account, I mean, the, the Associated Press reporter on the spot that day was taking this down in shorthand and includes in brackets points where Lincoln was interrupted by applause. You also see something of the impression made at a distance 
by people who read the text of the address in the newspapers. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow um, has the text of the Gettysburg Address in the morning paper the day after, on November 20th. And, he, and Longfellow writes to his publisher that he had read Lincoln's brief speech at Gettysburg in the paper, and he said, which, and he said this seems to me admirable. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, said much the same thing as Longfellow. He said, Lincoln's, Lincoln's brief speech at Gettysburg will not easily be surpassed hmm. by, by words on any recorded occasion. Uh, Senator Charles Sumner uh, from Massachusetts actually, actually said that Lincoln was wrong when, when Lincoln said that the world would little note nor long remember what was said by anybody at the dedication. Uh, Sumner said, no, Lincoln was wrong on that point. Uh, the world, Link, uh, Sumner said, the world noted at once what he said and will never cease to remember it. A in fact, Sumner went on, you know, being a Harvard grad and, and, and full of classical allusions himself, like Everett, uh, he, Sumner said that the battle itself was less important than the speech. Yeah. Uh, not, not since Simon Ides wrote the epitaph for the dead at Thermopylae, nothing equal to that had ever been breathed over the fallen dead. And, and, the, and you see this in another way, too, because within 20 months of the delivery of the address, the address is already being anthologized in those elocution primers and readers for memorization and school use. So people's response to the Gettysburg Address was, was quite demonstrative uh, from the very start. Now, it's also very partisan because Republican newspapers will praise it to the heights. Democratic newspapers will try to pan it. But then again, Democratic newspapers panned everything Lincoln said. So you, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Uh, the fact was that they recognized that the speech had made an impact, even when they wanted to pan it. Hmm. So when you take that as the measure, uh, the Gettysburg Address did not simply go out as Lamon tried to suggest it did on deaf ears. Uh, to the contrary, what he had to say at Gettysburg was heard and treasured right from the very beginning. It was heard and treasured right from the very beginning. As we draw to a close, I'd like to discuss whether it's still being heard or still being treasured today. Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address 87 years after the Declaration of Independence was written. We are now more than 157 years removed from the Gettysburg Address and more than 200 years removed from the Declaration of Independence. What does or what should the Gettysburg Address mean to us today? I think it should mean that the American experiment goes on. The American experiment survives. And it survives not because Americans are more clever than anyone else in the world or that Americans are more politically savvy than everyone else in the world. What it means is that the American experiment goes on because it really was founded on the right basis, on the basis of human experience and human nature itself. Everything that made the American Revolution happen has its roots for a hundred and more years 
200 years actually before that, going back into what we call the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution of the Enlightenment. That scientific revolution, as symbolized by Isaac Newton, by Galileo, by many others, that revolution took the old classical way of looking at the universe as a structured hierarchy and said, no, that's, that's not rational. That's not the way the universe functions. The universe doesn't function by hierarchy. The universe functions by natural law, natural law like gravity. In a sense, what Newton was describing when he talked about gravity, he called it attraction at a distance, was the fact that material substance in the universe operates according to predictable, measurable mathematical law, not according to, to Aristotelian hierarchy. Now, people in the Enlightenment looked at that and said, okay, that's, that's a different and very successful way of looking at the natural world. Is there a natural law that governs the social and political world as well? And that was what led Locke, Montesquieu, Beccaria, to write the treatises that they wrote describing a new way of organizing human society, and those were the political influences on the American founders. So if we understand the Enlightenment as the discovery of the basic principles on which the natural world functions, it was also the discovery of the basic principles on which the political and social world functions. And that was what the American experiment captured. Hmm. Now, what Lincoln is saying is, in this civil war, we are dealing with people who have risen in rebellion against that, who want to take us back to hierarchy. In this case, racial hierarchy, because this is what the Confederacy is dedicated to. And we are going to see in this war a test of whether the principles on which the American Republic is built can be said to be justified. He believes they are, and he believes that Gettysburg is the proof of that. Mm. Today, we continue to struggle. We have continued to struggle since 1863 with varieties of doubt and skepticism about them. But to the extent that the American experiment is founded on principles that are natural to human existence itself, that are written into the very fabric of the natural order, to that extent, then what Lincoln is describing is something that Americans can embrace and open to everyone in the world. And Lincoln really believed that would happen. Hmm. He believed that being a republic, a democratic republic, is something that ennobles us. And that ennobling is what ensures that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not, under God, perish from the earth. That's a principle, that's an insight, that's an understanding that every generation of Americans has to appropriate for themselves. And whether the doubts and skepticism come from within or from without, that is what we dedicate ourselves to afresh in every generation. And that is why Lincoln's words continue to resonate for us, not only for us, 
but for people around the world, like my great-grandfather from Sweden, who could come from a country far removed and a culture far removed from America and read those words and find them resonating in his own mind and heart. As I believe they continue to resonate in the minds of her- and hearts of Americans today. Dr. Gelder, one final question for you before we let you go. You explained how Abraham Lincoln saw the Civil War as a sort of final exam for this great experiment in ordered liberty and Republican self-government. I think many Americans today feel as though we are taking another exam, maybe another final exam. And we are yearning for a statesman like Abraham Lincoln. We want to be comforted, inspired by the words like those we have been discussing today. Dr. Gozo, what would Abraham Lincoln say to us today? He would start, I think, with two words that we badly, badly, badly need to hear. It's the two words that begin his first inaugural and his second inaugural. Fellow citizens. I mean, doesn't that sound like the most simple way that you address a crowd when you're delivering an inaugural address? And yet how fraught with meaning they are. Fellow citizens. What binds us together? In spite of all the things that appear to divide us, what binds us together? That we are fellow citizens. And in both of those inaugural addresses, he appeals to that. At the end of the first inaugural, he says, I am loath to close. What an interesting way of putting that. He is loath to close. It's almost as though he said he's afraid to stop this appeal. He believes so passionately that it is the balm that will bring peace. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. And the mystic cords of memory that extend from every patriot grave to every heart in the Republic today, those must surely serve to bind us together, especially when when activated by the better angels of our nature. Little Shakespearean invocation there. But he appeals to fellow citizens who are bound by those mystic chords. And you can't miss the fact that that language that he invokes there is the same language Madison invokes in the 14th Federalist. It's the most passionate moment in the Federalist Papers. Madison appeals to what he calls the chords of affection. And he says, hearken not, my fellow Americans, hearken not to the voices that divide us. Madison is is crying from the heart at a moment of, of uncertainty and division in American life. So is Lincoln. And then Lincoln comes back in the second inaugural. Once again, he appeals fellow citizens. And by this, he means not just Northerners. He means Northerners and Southerners together. 
because the content of the second inaugural is to say, not we Northerners were right and we're triumphant over those evil Southerners whom we may now treat with contempt. He could have said that. Second inaugural could have been his victory lap, but it's not. Instead, he says, in the divine view, in the view of God, we have all fallen short. Hmm. We are all punished by what we have gone through in this terrible war, this terrible scourge of war. At the end, he once again appeals to his fellow citizens with malice toward none, with charity for all, to bind up the wounds of the nation. Oh, Nino, how badly we hear, need to hear that. Oh, how much we yearn, I think, to hear that. And then you wonder, yes, but you know, that's, that's Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> well, no one could have predicted we would have gotten an Abraham Lincoln in 1860 when he was elected president. And for much of his presidency, nobody thought he was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> not the Abraham Lincoln we understand and hear today. Uh, no, we, we, we did not anticipate Lincoln, and yet we got him at our moment of greatest need. We may yet get a Lincoln who can speak to us in those same measured terms. We cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. Brave men living and dead who fought here, consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. Rather, it is for us, the living, to be here dedicated. We need to hear those words. We need to hear them from Lincoln as part of our, the fabric of American memory. We also need to hear them from our leaders today. I hope we will hear that. I hope with all my heart that we will hear that. I hope that today I have tried to say in my own small halting way something of the same thing. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today has been Dr. Alan C. Gelzo. Dr. Gelzo, thank you. Thank you, Anita. There you have it, folks. Dr. Alan C. Gelzo on Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. I thought we'd let Dr. Gelzo have the last word and close with the final few sentences of his 2013 article on the Gettysburg Address. He writes, The genius of the address thus lay not in its language or in its brevity, virtues though these were, but in the new birth it gave to those who had become discouraged and wearied by democracy's follies, and in the reminder that democracy's survival rested ultimately in the hands of citizens who saw something in democracy worth dying for. We could use that reminder again today. End quote. Thanks so much for joining us today as we celebrate the Gettysburg Address, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes. Mm -hmm.